Um, Father, thank you for letting me be a part of the family again. I, I can't wait for the next service. I can't wait to be with the people that I love and that love me. And, and together we love you. It means so much. Would you please give a lot of wisdom right now and teach us your ways and your heart and what it means to truly experience you, to be in your presence, to have hearts that are unfettered and we just we clear the clutter and we seek after you. Thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last Sunday, a quick recap. Just a reminder uh, for those of you who are married or uh, those relating to mom and dad, that there are big structural principles in Scripture and teachings that apply to all of us, and those things are not suspended just because you get married, Okay that the same rules that apply to a husband and wife apply to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. They apply to moms and dads and, and, and brothers and sisters and all that stuff. We are literally designed by God to relate to each other, and we are to live out this thing called love, that love is patient, love is kind. So just a reminder of that big, big picture. So something I, I shared Sunday that was important was about forgiveness and about attunement. I want to get into that uh, in, a, in a bit. I'm going to answer three questions this morning based on email responses to me through the week. Number one, what is the human soul? What does that mean? How do you define it? This is going to be a bit of a, a challenge, but I know you guys are here to learn and we're not here to, to be robots. So I dare you to think, okay? Let's pop through some things here. So about the human soul... Uh, the first is going to be, uh, the first reference to this idea is in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man uh, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became nephish in Hebrew, nephish. He became a living being. He had a soul. He came to life. He came to life. Look at this in Matthew 6-25. For this reason, I say to you, do not worried, be worried about your suke, your soul. In Greek, it's suke, where we get our English word psychology. Okay? So fascinating that in Genesis 2-7, Hebrew nefesh, in Greek, in Matthew 6, suke. Man becomes this living being, and then we have this teaching on worry. Do not be worried about your soul as to what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, etc. Uh, my soul has been under great stress. I have been worrying, which I possibly think might be one of my spiritual gifts. Uh, when my daughter Catherine boarded a plane and flew to the UK, i tell you what, I FaceTimed with her this morning and it was so good to hear from Catherine. Uh, she said, Daddy, it's cold. <laughs> And she, had, she was out on the steps, and she got a big quilt and was bundled up, and uh, it's just cold on that island, I'm telling you. So Catherine does say hello to everyone, and, and uh, she misses you. So a couple more scriptures about our souls. First um, Thessalonians 5.23. Uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a couple times in the New Testament where there's kind of a breakout 
where you get this detailed statement of there's a spirit, there's a soul, there's a body. And the question is, is Paul doing technical anthropology? Is Paul being the scientist right now? And, and is Paul intentionally trying to say, I know there's a big difference between your spirit and there's a big difference between your soul and there's a big difference between your body and I want to make sure that you, are, you have intimacy with God and purity on all three levels. And is he doing that? Technical anthropology. He's getting at what does it mean to be human? Uh, there are some scholars that say yes. Others say no, not at all. First of all, Paul is not a scientist. He's not a psychiatrist or a medical doctor. You know, he's not an anthropologist. He's simply saying, I want you to be pure through and through. That's all that he means. Through and through. Be pure. Uh, and so the question is begged. Spirit, panuma, and suke, soul, are they one and the same, or are they different? Are they the same, or are they different? This is an interesting verse. This is from um, Hebrews here, popping up just a second. Come on. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Ooh, getting kind of technical now. <clears throat> that the scriptures are being rather pointed that you can make a separation between spirit and soul, even of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's another tough question. Uh, Jed, in your study of medicine, this is a good one for you. The heart. What is the heart, you know? The visceral gut organs, you know, the seat of emotions, you know? In the ancient, the ancient mind, uh, the heart was the seat of emotions. And because when you're, when you're in love and you get butterflies, it hits you in your gut, right? Or when you're angry and under acute stress, it hits you in your gut. And so the ancient people would, would believe that, that the seat of emotions is inside your chest. And that's why we say things, I love you with all my heart. Because it just kind of makes sense to us on a figurative level, that I love you with my heart, but not with my blood-pumping organ, right? So, look at this. This is interesting. So we can separate soul and spirit. And it's at that point that thoughts and intentions of the heart are judged. So, soul and spirit is a way of connecting up the place inside of you that has thoughts and motives. Your conscience. Makes sense? So, this is what I want us to get a hold of. To conclude uh, some basic stuff about the human soul. Uh, you, it is argued first that your soul is the thing that gives evidence that you are created in the image of God. It is the thing that proves you're made in God's image, which I completely agree with. And then secondly, I love the quote uh, by George MacDonald, a Scottish theologian and poet, author, who said... You don't have a soul. You are a soul who just happens to have a body. And I think that's a great way to put it. You know, we Americans are so consumed with our bodies, we think we're bodies, and we just happen to have a soul inside. But the opposite is actually true. We are souls who just happen to be housed in a body. And I think McDonald's is right on that one. 
Uh, we commonly should understand our soul as the interior sense of self. This is where we have our emotions, the seat of emotions, the intellect, and volition. Volition is your power to make a choice. Some chose Cocoa Pebbles this morning. Some chose Lucky Charms. Okay, we could probably psychologize that and it'd be really fun on who chose what this morning. I've got the Kashi, the all-organic Kashi. I just want you to know that. So... Um, what about your spirit? Is that that unique place in you that you relate to God? Does anybody believe that you can sin with your flesh? Sure. Sure. Can you sin with your soul? You can commit a mental sin, an emotional sin? Yes. All right. Yeah. Can you commit a sin with your spirit? We have one no. Any, any others that say no? No? Interesting. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7. Look at what it says, 2 Corinthians 7. Look at this, yeah. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises... Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting the holiness and the fear of God. So for Paul, you can sin on all three levels. Sins of the flesh, sins of the soul, sins of the spirit. You can have defilement and corruption spiritually. Okay? Do you think worshiping an idol will, will cause spiritual sin? Absolutely, worshiping a false god. So for Paul, your spirit even has the capacity to make really unhealthy choices. Makes sense. Now, do I need to force with you some real technical splits between soul and spirit? I'm, I'm telling you, I don't have that capability. To me, they're so closely related, it's really hard to do that. Really hard. Uh, there are brilliant people on both sides who say we are three-part people. Others that say that we are two-part Here's what I know, that we can sin spiritually and soulishly, and that when you are filled with God's Spirit, and you listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, filled with, led by, obedient to the Holy Spirit, you clean, you clean that, those places up. You clean up your spirit. You clean up your soul. And you don't have idols. And you make sure that you're worshiping the true and the living God, and you're not worshiping the flesh. Okay? Uh, everybody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, just a couple more verses to tie this off. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, and, I, and I love this, uh, this teaching. Look at um, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man, the man that's not a Christian, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually appraised. But the one who is spiritual discerns or praises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, look at this statement, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Can you imagine if you fully appreciated that you have the mind of Christ? Okay. Now, quick pop quiz. Are the pronouns singular or plural? 
in 1 Corinthians 2. Singular or plural. They're plural. So, Becca, we have the mind of Christ, right? So if you want to do your best work and mature in the, in the disciplines of your soul and your spirit, it needs to be right now. It should take place right here and now when we come together as the body of Christ so that we can understand that we collectively share the mind of Christ. Makes sense? Okay, um, when you are a mature follower of Jesus Christ, you gain some key skill sets. Everybody turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. And I want you to look at verse 14. Paul's setting up some arguments about people who claim to be spiritual, but they're really immature. And it says in 5.14 that solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Senses, the Greek word for senses, literally means the organs of sense. That's what it actually means. In other words, we have five common Senses, eyes, ears, touch, taste, sound, smell, right, are common senses. Paul is saying that there are common senses about people who are born again. And that as such, we have the ability, the responsibility to practice discerning good and evil. That is a function of your soul, okay, the faculties inside of you to, to know right from wrong is a function of your soul. People who are immature struggle with that. And sin looks really, really attractive, right? And doing the right thing, the righteous thing, looks really, really boring. So therefore, I'm going to struggle with it because one looks like candy and one looks like it, it's bitter nasty. Isaiah put it this way, woe to those people who substitute light for darkness, darkness for light, a sweet thing for bitter, bitter for sweet, and who call good evil and evil good. Woe to that person. Now, if you have the mind, you, if we have the mind of Christ, right, and we know what's going on inside our souls and our spirit, we're going to practice together discerning good from evil. Therefore, I say unto you, Christ Church, one of the most important things that's going to happen today is when I stop talking, like, amen to that one, right? When I stop talking and the music stops and we get together and you talk and you start praying and you practice live today the discerning of good and evil. And you motivate and stimulate each other to love and good works. Now you are living out the mind of Christ in his body, the church. Does that make sense? So the soul is that interior sense of self. Can you separate it completely and finally with your spirit? In some senses, yes. In others, no. They're used interchangeably. You can't, all right? And that is true in both the Old and the New Testaments. Okay. Let's look at this one. Someone else sent me a question about forgiveness. And this is going to be a bit labor intensive for us here. Um, 
Look at this. <clears throat> what is forgiveness? First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. This is something with my clients, that my clients are PTS and are working through child abuse or, or radical abandonment, and they have a lot of attachment issues, a lot of attachment anxiety. Their friendships are shallow, they're manipulative, they're short-term. They cycle and get too close and get mad and peel away. Cycle and get too close, get mad, peel away. I mean, just they're cycling through relationships. It's all a part of attachment anxiety and, and normally some hint of PTS on some level. Uh, and forgiveness for that person is really, really hard. Really hard. First of all, it, it's awfully hard to take ownership of these emotions, for one. And it's awfully hard to deal with the reality that that we really want God to mete out some punishment right now, okay? And if God would just get off his throne and start whooping up on, like, North Korea and all the knuckleheads in, in Charlottesville or the knuckleheads in Ferguson or wherever the knuckleheads are, I, I don't particularly care, but if God would just kind of mete out some punishment, you know, root it out, then maybe things would get better. You know, it's just hard, hard to deal with these emotions. What is forgiveness? How do you forgive somebody that's hurt you at a deep, deep core level. And by the way, that can be physical. You can take a physical beating that's abuse. You can take an emotional beating that's abuse. Okay? And for some people, the emotional beating comes from just abandonment. Um, a question, a, a razor-sharp question that I ask some of my clients when the time is right is this. Do you ever recall your mom and dad saying, I love you? And that sense in which it's a truly unconditional sense of genuine love. And you'd be surprised how many say, I, I don't remember. I don't know. I don't know. So, what is forgiveness? Number one, it is not forgetting. Here's why. Let's talk about your brain. Caught at nucleus in your brain kind of a mediating organ between the, the, uh, the super smart part of the brain, the cortex, and the midbrain, uh, near the basal ganglia. Here's what's going on with the caudate nucleus. It's the executive memory system of your brain. And it has the ability to tap into all your memories and say, hmm, have I been here before? Have I been in this situation before? What, what was the outcome the last time? What should I do right now? For example, if you see a handsome police officer in their uniform and their big muscles and all their gun in the bag, Brian, Brian walks up to you, okay? Just Brian walks up. And you are mad because he's packing not only a gun, he's packing an attitude. He's copping an attitude, and so you think you should slap him. That would be an appropriate response to a cop with a bad attitude. You just pop. It's on camera. Next thing you know, you've got cops. Next thing you know, you got an attorney, and eventually get it worked out, and now we're done. Well, five years later, here he comes. He caught you for speeding again. <laughs> you got, and, and you know what? You're caught at nucleus. When you see Brian coming in a uniform, you're caught at nucleus. says, whoa, I've been here before. <laughs> I remember this one. And the last time I slapped him, do not slap the cop. That is the best thing to do. Don't slap the police officer. They tend to get offended. That's your caught at nucleus saying, hey, dude, remember what happened five years ago? Don't slap the police officer, and you'll have a better outcome. And so you, you don't. You put your hands behind your back and say, yes, sir, I was speeding, and here's my license and my registration. And you get your little ticket, and you go, much better than jail. Okay? That's the function of your caught at nucleus. It can tap into memories 
and motivates you to repeat or avoid an action. All right, now, ladies, this one's for you. You're amazing. Your hippocampus, it attaches deep in the midbrain to something called the amygdala, which is the emotional supercenter of the brain, and it's where it manages fight and flight and all that stuff. Your hippocampus is the, the part of the brain that decides this memory is going in long-term storage. And it usually does it because there's a supercharged emotion. Okay? When you take an experience, you punch in pergament at some intense emotions, it's going long-term storage. Now, the female brain is fascinating, and it has a capacity to not only sense and manage and feel emotions, it has a, a capacity to attach them to information far more efficiently than a male, okay? That is why women have such amazing memories. They have this amazing recall because they know how to process information when it's attached to emotion far more efficiently than a male. And that's why they have this amazing female intuition, this amazing capacity for memory, okay? A woman who has been abused will never forget about it. Never. And a male who's been abused, in all likelihood, barring traumatic brain injury or something, will never forget about it. Your caudate nucleus and your hippocampus are wired for memory retention and memory processing. You don't forget stuff like that. You will always remember. Okay? So forgiving is not forgetting. That's something God has the capacity for. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's also repeated in Jeremiah 31. What else? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Uh, we get tripped up there. Now, that's a real soul issue, isn't it? That's a soul issue. Forgiveness is not a feeling. If you wait to have the right, warm, fuzzy feeling to forgive your enemy, uh, it's possible you never will. You just won't do it. Not at all. Because if you're looking to a feeling to validate or to create that warm, mushy-gushy, hallmark feeling, it just isn't going to happen. That's not what forgiveness is. You've got to learn, and I'll say it a million more times, You've got to learn to separate the facts from your feelings. You've got to know the difference between those two things. They're very, very different. And yet, hold them in equilibrium. Okay? You can't ignore your feelings, but they cannot control you. Please pay attention to this one. Truth, Scripture, Holy Spirit, wisdom. Manage our feelings, not vice versa. Okay? I know so many believers whose feelings manage truth whose feelings are the thing that cause them to believe A or believe B. That is dangerous. Truth manages feelings. Feelings don't manage truth. This is where we start discerning what is good and what is evil. Okay? Pop through a couple more. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a reflexive response. It's a reflexive response. It's a kind of reciprocity based on the finished work of Jesus Christ in his followers' life, in what he did on the cross, okay? Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, treat people the way you want to be treated. When you, when you die and your soul, nefesh, based on Hebrews and other texts or, or Genesis, departs from your body and you are now standing before God to face judgment, do you want God to hold your sins against you? No, I don't. Good heavens. Can you imagine going face to face with Almighty God and Jesus Christ denying you and every sin that you've ever committed or the secret ones you hope you could commit? And you're held accountable for that for all eternity? Do you want to face that? So Paul is saying, look, he has forgiven you the big thing. Responsively, reflexively forgive other people. Let's, let's put it this way. You might remember this in uh, Matthew 18, the amazing story of the master who went to claim his debts back and he found a man that owed him 10,000 talents. Remember we crunched the numbers on that? We got a kind of cultural equivalent. That man, Jerry, owed his, 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 his loan officer 54,750 days of labor based on first century scale. In other words, impossible. There is no way that that poor slave is going to pay back 54 million plus days of labor or over 33 generations of labor to pay back that kind of debt. It's radically absurd. And so the whole point is, if God has forgiven you 54 million plus days of sin debt, can't you forgive the guy that, that owes you six months worth of labor? So forgiveness is a reflexive response. It looks something like this. Here's what, it, and what examples of forgiveness look like. Number one, releasing your enemy from your judgment and anger. Literally take the handcuffs off your enemy and set him free. Brian, how many times have you took the handcuffs off of a guilty person? All the time. Did you hear what I said? He's taken the handcuffs off a guilty person, not an innocent person. Does it all the time. It's your job, right? That's a lot like forgiveness. You're taking the handcuffs off of the person that hurts you, knowing they are guilty, knowing you won't forget about it, and, and God is not forcing you to have these loving, warm, mushy feelings toward the person that hurts you, but he's saying it's time to take the cuffs off and let them go. They no longer can be under arrest because of your anger, all right? So it has to do with unlocking the handcuffs. It has to do with prayer, praying for our enemies. It has to do with this. This is a hard one, restoring of eye contact. That's a hard one. Because when people hurt you, one of the first indicators that you're hurt is you don't look them in the eye. First thing, don't look, no eye contact. Look away. Find something else to look at. Secondly, the restoration of safe communication and the restoration of safe acceptance. Can you imagine why I'm saying the word safe? There are some people who hurt you that you need to be very, very careful with because they have the capacity to hurt you again. And if, if a criminal uh, 
comes across my threshold, there's going to be very, very bad things happen, and should we all survive? And if he tries to come across the threshold again, uh, he's violating a major safe zone, and there's going to be really, really bad things. So we're assuming safe communication, safe acceptance, and then also a restoration of benevolent kindness. Didn't Jesus say, be good to our enemies? Be kind. If they demand one, go two miles kind of thing. Forgiveness is the ability to treat an enemy the way you want to be treated if God were going to judge you. It's letting him, letting him go. Okay. Last question. Someone asked, what's the complete process of effective communication, conflict, resolution in marriage and family? <clears throat> what I said Sunday uh, hit, a, hit a nerve or two with some people. And that is, what is attunement? What is attunement? If you remember, I told you that attunement has to do with feeling the feelings and thinking the thoughts of your spouse or your son or your daughter or your mom or dad. And that's a key step. So if you want to know, in my mind, how you can restore a damaged relationship in your marriage or parent-child relationship or among siblings, it would look something like this. The ability to see and value the person through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Okay. So here's what I want you to do. I want you guys to think of someone in your family who has hurt you. All right? Pull it up. You're probably already there, right? Someone who has wounded you, has hurt you, whether it was a full-on abuse scenario or whether it was, it was abandonment, whatever the case may be, pull that up in your mind, and I want you to think about walking through this with me. What if you saw that person through the very eyes of Jesus Christ? Would something be different? Would there be a potentially different attitude toward that person that hurts you? Secondly, what if you did practice attunement? Remember, attunement literally is feeling their feelings and thinking their thoughts. Okay, if you're not sure exactly what all of that means, uh, Peter Fonagy of Cambridge calls it reflective functioning. Our grandparents called it walking a mile in another man's shoes. That's what it means. To enter into their head, their heart, and try to see it and feel it through their souls. That's called understanding. Does it make sense? When you have the ability to truly understand someone, you are, you're setting aside, judging them, uh, and you're letting them pour their heart. Lisa and I had a, had a beautiful time together. I'm bragging on you. I, uh, I'm, I'm just getting, can I get honest with you guys? I had a terrible time with my daughter going to the UK. I didn't last time. I don't know why. I'm old and cranky. I, something, something's going on. Uh, but I really struggled with it hard. And uh, it was late at night, 11.30ish. And guess what I did? I unloaded. I, uh, I had some pretty saucy language. I was upset. And I let Lisa and God and the whole world know how mad I was about a variety of things in my little world. And do you know what Lisa did? She didn't say a thing. She practiced attunement. She felt my feelings. She was thinking my thoughts. She let me vent. She didn't say, 
<laughs> well, preacher man, don't you think you need to practice what you preach? You know, she could have <laughs> she could have said it. And Chris, if she did, I'd be like, oh, okay, guilty as charged, cuff me. You got me on that one, you know. She did. By the way, I already knew that too, by the way. Oftentimes, you realize we already know the answers. Do you understand? We already know what the answers are. We just can't deal with the feelings. And she let me vent, and I had a good, uh, you know, fit, a good temper tantrum. And she, she was just so kind. Lisa, thank you. That was beautiful. I needed that. And uh, yes, you are my therapist. Just now you know where I turn, so there you go. Okay? Thank you. Uh, had you not done that, that would have hurt. It would have hurt me to get, when you get that raw, that open, and someone moves straight into judgment and correctives, wouldn't have gone well. I needed her to do exactly what she did, and it met a deep need in me and, uh, and, and deepened my love for her and my marriage. Once you attune, start to negotiate. Oh boy, this is fun. Now it's negotiation time. Okay, what does it look like? It looks like this. There's got to be a clear communication of the what and the why of your wants. And it might, let's do something really silly. You've got $1,000 to blow. Do you go to Florida or do you go to the Grand Canyon? What do you do? You've got a choice, you know. Do you, you, know, you really, really think, man, it's the beach. That's where it's at. But your spouse says, I'm sick and tired of the beach. And let's just go to the Grand Canyon. It'll be beautiful. We've never done it before. Or somewhere out there in Wyoming and all those cool places, Yosemite. And let's just go do that. That'd be great. You know, something new and, and fresh. And all of a sudden, the problem starts. Well, here we go. You always get what you want. Well, I never get what I want. Why can't we? And, and the negotiation starts. Well, if you do attunement first, please hear me. Can, can we all get on the same page? If you're from New Jersey, can we talk? <laughs> can we talk? You ready? If you do good attunement, do you know how easy it is to negotiate? Chris, you're nodding. If you move into negotiation without attunement, what happens? Conflict. You do complete butting of heads. And emotions escalate, and now we're angry, and things get ugly because you can't negotiate because you didn't get attunement. You didn't dial into her heart or his heart, his head, her. You've got to feel the feelings and think the thoughts first. Then you, uh, you move into negotiation. Clear communication of the what, the why, of you, what you want. It's okay to give a black and white answer. By the way, why do spouses have a hard time picking a restaurant? Why? Why don't you just say it plainly? I want to go to Taco Bell. This is not complicated. Let's go to Taco Bell, all right? It's not hard. Uh, <laughs> see clarity of the what and the why. Why is Taco Bell so important to you? Is there some childhood attachment to a bean burrito? Is that what we're dealing with? We got some going on here. See clarity of the what and the why. Affirm the attunement. Okay, let me get this straight. This is important to you because, and you get at their heart. Get at it, Okay. And at that point, you just say to your spouse, sweetheart, you're right, you win, whatever you say, dear. <clears throat> I was just kidding. The men are silent. I don't know why. So, Compromise. Compromise. It may mean, you know what, we're going to go to Arizona this year, next year we'll go to Florida, and we'll just rotate it, and it'll work. 
Yeah, great. Win-win. Look for that. That's how that's done. Now, uh, agree to be reasonable and mutually supportive uh, in your answer. Uh, I want to give my personal opinion on, on a matter, and if you think I'm violating Scripture, I'm open to, to it. Please be nice. Uh, if you're going to be mean, be nice about it. You know, uh, Philippians 2 talks about the commitment that let the needs of the other person be more important than your own. I absolutely agree with that. I believe that with my whole heart. But I want you to know something, that uh, in a marriage relationships, relationship, you have to be real careful about always letting a dominant spouse win. Be real careful with that, okay? I'm not negating scripture because if, if you're going to really apply Philippians 2 correctly between me and Lisa, if, if her needs are more important than mine, that's good. As long as for her, my needs are more important for her. And if that happens... We have mutually supporting uh, relationship. And there's no neglect. The fact is, we are human beings. And if in my marriage, I won all the time. And I am the one who's immature and radically consumed with my own needs, it would become so exhausting to Lisa that it would lead to a radical breakdown in our relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm acknowledging the command. Mutual support is God's answer. But I'm just telling you, uh, when there's immaturity in a relationship and you've got a dysfunctional person you're married to, be real careful to not become their doormat. Does that make sense? You cannot become the doormat of your spouse. That is not healthy. It's not even spiritually healthy. Okay? And I don't think Philippians 2 is a license or some authorization card that a spouse can, can trump you with. I don't think that's what's going on there at all. So, all right. Regarding matters of the soul, I want to offer the following. And Stephen will wrap this up. Please focus on knowing the mind of Christ and knowing him corporately as the body of Christ. Please be aware that we need to practice having our senses trained so that we can know good from evil. All right. Now we've covered a lot. We've covered forgiveness. We've covered what the human soul is. We've covered what does it look like to resolve a damaged relationship. Here's what I want to present. You're the body of Christ. We need your wisdom. How would you advise any insight that you can bring right now would be so important for us to know how to forgive, knowing it's not forgetting, no, it's not a feeling, it's an action in response to what Christ has done in you, and to truly understand what it means to love and how to restore a relationship. This stuff matters. Advice, counsel as well. How would we live in view of what we've covered today? Anybody? Clay. I guess it sort of depends on your capacity to handle some situations. Like you're going to have some people that come in contact with that are just going to hurt you over and over and over. 
Yeah, and Clay, thank you. That's why I said safe communication. Because if it's an unsafe situation, you never, you never, we're not doormats. You just don't put yourself in a situation. Agree. Thank you, Clay. Guy? Yeah, along with that, if you keep letting somebody do that, you're actually not helping them. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're enabling. Yeah. That's tough. We went through a thing several years back that was really, really hard. I want them to suffer this, I want them to, you know, whatever. And then, then the, the question that follows is, well, how would you feel if that happened? Well, I'd feel pretty good. That'd make me happy for that person to suffer. If I were honest with myself, you know, good Christianese, you don't say that. But as I was being honest, that's really what I wanted. I wanted them to suffer. And and then God was really clear. He said, well, who paid for that? Thank you, Guy. Wow. It's not easy either, by the way. I'm not saying that. It's not like you just, I go, oh, I feel everything is happy. <laughs> Does anyone here that believe that, you know, let's say you've had a really abusive relationship with your father or something like that, and you're trying to work through that or someone stabbed you in the back of a betrayal situation. 
Do you think that you need to ask uh, God to help you with forgiveness like one time or is it multiple times? Multiple? Yeah. You think it's good to go back and revisit and say, God, I want to let you know again, I forgive my enemy. And do you think it's good to do that? I do. I do. get the same result again. Uh, sort of a height of folly to do the same thing and expect a different result. Yeah. But I know that I have done that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in you explaining about women's capacity to remember remember things. Sure does. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I think it's genius that we do remember. I think if we didn't, if God took away that capacity, I think our relationship would become very shallow, very cheap. Very cheap. So I'm grateful for that. So let's uh, tell you what, I want you to bow your heads. We're going to pray. This is what I ask you to do. Remember that person I ask you to, to remember who hurt you deeply? Think about what it would be like if you forgave them. If you could take the the emotional handcuffs off and release them, even though they're guilty. (laughs) You know they're guilty. They did it. But you could take the handcuffs off. You're going to seek to allow eye contact, assuming it's safe, safe communication, safe acceptance. And as God mentioned, you're going to learn to be kind and you want them to know restoration. Would you just for a minute take your first steps toward forgiving your enemy? So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity.
Abba Father, would you please do that deep work of grace in every heart here. For the person who believes that the pain of the harm done them is, is too deep to deal with, would you give them hope? For the person who's just sick and tired of dealing with that, the force, the gravity, the pull of bitterness, would you help them to see what your love looks like? Would you give every husband and wife, every son and daughter here, the ability to tune in to the heart of a family member and to truly understand and know them and to learn how to get along? Please. Thank you so much for the death of your son, Jesus Christ, knowing that the blood that he shed on the cross is the very thing that creates the power to know forgiveness of sins, that through his blood we have forgiveness, and that our trespasses have been moved away, our sin debt is canceled because of what he did. Teach us in reflex to forgive others, please. Lord, thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.